Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine. Heine Brothers Coffee is committed to organics and fair trade, recycling, friendly and relaxing shops, and a great cup of coffee. Now featuring coffees roasted in our headquarters and coffee roastery in Louisville's Portland neighborhood. If you're outside of Louisville, you can get coffee shipped to your door by ordering online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. Heine Brothers Coffee, Louisville's neighborhood gathering place since 1994. I also would like to give a shout out to our new friend at Matula.com. Basically, it's like this. The other day, I wanted to search for something that I had heard in a podcast, but I couldn't remember where or when it was said. So I hopped on Matula.com and it came right up. Kind of feels like Google for the spoken word. So you should check it out. And next time you can't remember where you heard something awesome on the past and the curious, you can probably find it there because we're on there. That's matula.com, M-A-T-O-O-L-A.com. Well, hello, and welcome to episode 12 of The Past and the Curious. We're really excited about this one, as we are all episodes. This episode is all about presidential dexiosis. Say what? That's the ritual of the handshake. Dexiosis is actually... Uh, if you in Greek, it means the joining together of the right hands. And today we've got a really fun story about Abraham Lincoln. It's one of my favorites of all time. And before that, you're going to hear the origins of the presidential handshake, as well as how they solved the dilemma of what do we even call the president? Because when George Washington was president, he was the first president. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to call him. Um, and now here's here's some news for you. Uh, I've been really, really, really busy. And unfortunately, um, I was unable to get coordinated with our friends Jason and Victoria. So uh, to make it easier and to get this episode to you as quickly as possible, it's just going to be my voice today. So if you like my voice, well, happy day. If you don't like my voice, uh, sorry. Victoria will be back. She's moving to Texas, by the way, but she will be back and recording very soon. And you'll hear Jason in the future as well. We might even work a few new people in in the future. Uh, So stay tuned. George Washington was from the upper end of American society. And it was well understood that the Washingtons were one of the richest and most powerful families in the colony of Virginia. Even from childhood and throughout the remainder of his life, George was very aware of social class. Now don't get me wrong, it was very important for him to show respect towards people of all classes but he always made sure not to appear too familiar. His advantages helped shape his persona. There are tales that during the Revolutionary War, he would ride through a town, and all evidence states that he was really great on a horse. And people, they would just come out to watch the great general go by. He was handsome and stately and tall, and he commanded respect with a face that usually bore the faint hint of a smile. Now, when the Revolutionary War ended and the last of the British troops left New York City, 
George had been in charge of the American army throughout the eight years of the war. Eight years! And along the way, he had earned the admiration of nearly everyone. The Americans did the unthinkable. They won the war for independence against England. But then George turned around and did the unthinkable himself. You see, after the war, America really had no leader. And that was what the war was all about, right? No more king? But George Washington, the hero, the glorious victor himself, could have immediately filled that role. He could have been the leader. He could have made himself king. But instead, in an amazing display of honor and duty, he gave his farewell address and resigned his position. He went back home, and like his hero, the Roman general and farmer, Cincinnatus, he tried to live the rest of his life in private. It is said that King George III, the king that America broke ties with, yeah, he called George the greatest character of the age because of that act. What lots of people forget or fail to realize is that after the war, there were six years with no president. People like Alexander Hamilton and James Madison were working hard to organize a code of laws for the nation. There was a constitutional convention and other formal delegations, but there was no one person in that presidential seat. Finally, in 1789, George Washington was elected to be the first president of the United States. And being the first person on the job, it raised a lot of interesting questions. And not just the what are the rules of the position and how do we handle negotiating with other countries types of questions. One of the biggest questions was, what do we call him? You see, it seems there was no precedent for how people should address the president. Boo. Well, if you know anything about government, you know that they argue a lot and decisions are made very, very slowly. And this was no different. It took months to decide just on how to address Mr. Washington. His Electoral Highness, His Excellency, His High Mightiness. Then there was this mouthful. His Highness, the President of the United States and Protector of the Rights of the Same. John Adams actually suggested His Majesty. Hadn't we fought a war against a king to do away with all of this pomp? Thomas Jefferson thought so because he found it to be the most superlatively ridiculous thing I had ever heard of, and Ben Franklin was no fan either. He even once suggested calling the vice president his superfluous excellency. In the end, the simple title Mr. President was agreed upon. So, if lucky you had the honor of meeting George Washington, it would be your duty to bow and say, Mr. President. I know, I know what you're thinking. Bow? That's what you do before a king. And again, didn't America fight this war to be rid of kingly things? Well, yeah, but remember what I said about George not wanting to get too familiar with everyone? Well, part of that was that he certainly did not want to shake hands with everyone he met. He actively avoided it. In fact, when meeting people, he would hold his hat in one hand and rest his other on his sword. It was meant to force people to try to not shake his hand. He never made a hand available. 
Instead, they would bow with a Mr. President, and he would bow in return. Well, this tradition continued with the second president, John Adams. But then came along Thomas Jefferson, ever the revolutionary. He liked to think of himself as a man of the people. Regularly, Thomas Jefferson would wear house clothes to meetings and invite people casually into his home. All types of visitors were accepted and welcome. Now, he was okay with the title Mr. President, but he just couldn't get on board with the whole bowing thing. So on July 4th, 1801, Jefferson turned presidential cordiality on its head. Historians agree that this was the very first 4th of July celebration thrown by a president in the White House. And there was music and food and horse races and a parade. The grounds were full of people. There were military officers and foreign dignitaries. There were civilians and even a group of Cherokee chiefs who had come to DC to meet with the president. By all accounts, Jefferson mingled freely with everyone and encouraged all to take advantage of the celebration and hospitality. But no one bowed to him. Nope, Jefferson wished to break down the trappings of status and he greeted every person with a handshake. It was actually quite shocking for some, but quickly it became common. And to this day, presidents and presidential hopefuls all shake hands. They shake a tremendous number of hands. And while the germs might be one problem, as a presidential hopeful we'll meet in the next story can attest, there are other bad consequences from shaking so many hands. We think you'll agree Abraham Lincoln might have wished Thomas Jefferson had never started that tradition. Huh, I could really go for a quiz right about now. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Yep, it's quiz time. And your first question. On New Year's Day in 1907, President Teddy Roosevelt set a record for presidential handshakes. Would you care to take a guess as to how many hands he shook in one day? One of the many who shook Roosevelt's hand that day said it was a very full and firm grip. This man was one of 8,150 men, women, and children who pressed the flesh with the bull moose himself. Question number two. Though not presidents, four men hold the world record for the longest continual handshake in history. The record was set in New York's Times Square in 2011. Take a guess as to how long the men shook hands. So two men from New Zealand and two men from Nepal both set out to break the world record. In the end, neither team would give up and they agreed to share the new world record of 33 hours and three minutes. One of the men said, 
even if you love handshaking, I'd suggest you give this one some thought before trying it. Well, duh. And your third and final question. A president's handshake is a big deal. They meet lots and lots of people, many of whom are important. So one president from the mid-1900s wanted to get it just right. It is said that he actually hired a commission to study the perfect handshake. Guess who it was? Well, it was John F. Kennedy. There's actually a really cool photo of JFK shaking hands with a young Bill Clinton, a man who would grow up to be president himself about 30 years later. I don't know how many people listening have ever posed for a statue, but I doubt it's very many. However, when it comes to capturing your likeness for all of history to see, think about this. It's a safe bet that you are in more pictures than George Washington, John Adams, and Abraham Lincoln combined. That should make you feel good. Well, maybe not that good, really, because you should know there were actually no photos of George Washington or John Adams because the technology didn't even exist at the time. And as far as Lincoln, well, one good source we found can only verify somewhere between 60 and 70 photos of the man actually exist. And you know, some people take that many selfies in one day. Please don't be like those people. Anyway, for those important folks from way back when, it was more common to pose for a portrait artist or perhaps sit for a sculptor. Like we said, bet you haven't done that before. And being immortalized in sculpture wasn't always easy, as Abraham Lincoln will tell you. In 1860, Abe Lincoln, a lawyer and sometimes politician, was a long shot to win the presidential election. Of course, he would win, but he wouldn't have had it not been for two other candidates splitting most of the votes, allowing him to sneak on up into the top spot. And it was a good thing he did, too. He's often remembered as one of the most eloquent, intelligent, and moral leaders. He also liked a good joke. He was our kind of guy. Anyway, in 1860, Lincoln was campaigning for the office of president, and an artist in Chicago, a man named Leonard Volk, decided that it might be a good idea to create a statue of the long, lanky, Kentucky-born man. Maybe Volk had a hunch Lincoln would be president. Maybe he just thought he would look good on his mantle. Lincoln, after a bit of cajoling, eventually accepted the invitation for Volk to create a sculpture of him. And it would take a number of sittings. We're not exactly sure how many visits Lincoln made to the Chicago studio, but Volk claimed it was enough for him to come to recognize Lincoln's distinct footsteps coming up his staircase. You see... It appears that Lincoln was the type of man who take the staircase two steps at a time, a dead giveaway to the observant ears of the artist. And again, our kind of guy. Anyway, first things first, a sculpture needs a face. And this part is unpleasant for the model, to say the least. Volk wasn't going to shape Lincoln's face. What I, what I mean to say is that he wasn't going to start with a big block of something and cut or chip away until he was left with Lincoln's likeness. That would take too long, and Lincoln was a busy man 
who couldn't just be sitting around posing all the time. No. Plus, Volk wanted it to be incredibly accurate and to capture Lincoln's image exactly. So he created what we call a life mask. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a plaster mask made from a person's face while they're alive. And, as you might guess, there are also death masks. And those are exactly what they sound like as well. Unfortunately, Lincoln would have one of those just a few years later. So, if you can imagine, the very much alive Lincoln sat in Volk's studio as the artist applied wet plaster to every nook and cranny of the now famous face. And Lincoln sat there. And sat there. And sat there for over an hour as it slowly hardened. He couldn't talk. He couldn't scratch the constant itches that it caused. He could do almost nothing. Now, I bet I know where your mind went. If he couldn't do anything and his face was covered in plaster, well, I bet you're wondering how on earth he could breathe. Luckily, they had a solution for that. Two straws were stuck in that big presidential nose of his, and they poked out of the plaster like reeds from a riverbank. And for an hour or more, this was his only access to the world outside of his plaster mask. When it was finally time to free him from the plaster face prison, he leaned forward and slowly peeled it off. If the mold broke, they'd have to do it all over again. Now luckily, Lincoln didn't have a beard at the time, so this made it easier and less painful, as you might imagine. Recalling the event, Bulk said this. It was about an hour before the mold was ready to be removed, and being all in one piece, with both ears perfectly taken, it clung pretty hard, as the cheekbones were higher than the jaws at the lobe of the ear. He bent his head low and took off the mold, and gradually worked it off without breaking or injury. It hurt a little, as a few hairs of the tender temples pulled out with the plaster and made his eyes water. When Lincoln was asked about his experience, he just said it was, Anything but agreeable. Anything but agreeable indeed. Despite the pain, though, the men got along very well. And Volk said most of the time Lincoln was in the studio, he was talking. He loved to tell jokes and mostly was telling his favorite old tales and continually laughing with his great voice. Apparently, he never really wanted to talk about politics. Imagine that. They were just hanging out. How cool would it be to hang out with Lincoln? Over the course of the next few weeks, Volk would use the mold to create a cast of Lincoln's distinct facial features. There was no question when he was done, the mask was Abe Lincoln. But a few short months later, Lincoln was officially nominated for president, so Volk decided he had probably better finish the rest of the statue. The body wouldn't be a problem, but the artist, he was struck by Abraham Lincoln's hands, and he wanted them to be perfectly accurate. So he headed to Lincoln's home in Illinois with a bucket of plaster and the plan to do to Lincoln's hands what he had already done to his face. But what he found when he got there was a man in the whirlwind that only goes along with campaigning for president. Lincoln had spent the day before doing what campaigners do, meeting folks, giving speeches, 
kissing babies, shaking hands. He shook a lot of hands. There's no telling how many, really. But he shook so many hands that the next day, when he shook the hand of Volk, the artist immediately noticed how swollen Lincoln's right hand was. The pair of appendages didn't even match, as the handshaking hand was several sizes larger than the other from a day's worth of shaking what must have been every hand for 25 miles around. This would look strange in a sculpture, indeed, folk must have thought. One man, two vastly different hands. But he still had a job to do. He needed a mold of Lincoln's hands whether they matched or not. So after some discussion and some problem solving, it was decided that Lincoln could grasp something in his swollen hand in an effort to make the swelling less noticeable. So he walked out of his kitchen and returned with the sawed-off handle of a broomstick, which he held in his right hand as the plaster was applied and dried. To this day, the most famous recreation of Lincoln's hands are the pair Volk preserved, and one hand is noticeably swollen and clutching the round stick. The other is loose, relaxed, and significantly smaller. There are several casts of the hands and face that Volk made that you can see in various places. I saw one in New York City last year. Um, if you can't find one in person, you can easily find them online. And to make that easier for you, we'll post a photo on our website, thepastandthecurious.com, as well as our Facebook and Instagram pages. Now, the song for this month's episode isn't about the president, per se, but if I was going to meet a great president like Teddy Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln, you know, I think that I would want to look my best. And this song is certainly about looking your best. In this case, it's about looking as good as you can for a girl named Lulu. I've got to get my old tuxedo pressed. I gotta sew a button on my vest Cause tonight I've got to look my best Lulu's back in town Gotta get half a buck somewhere Gotta shine my shoes and slick my hair Got to get myself a boutonniere Lulu's back in town Well you can tell my pets All the blondes and brunettes Mr. Otis regrets That he's not around You can tell the mailman not to call I'm not coming home until the fall And I might not come back home at all Lulu's back in town
I need to say thank you to you for listening, but I also need to say thank you to Chaska and Mirabel, who are on Book Power for Kids, one of our friend podcasts from the Kids Listen group. Uh, they That was their voices in the Lincoln story you just heard, which they did a wonderful job. Uh, if you enjoyed, please subscribe. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, whatever. You should check out our friends in the Kids Listen group. Go to kidslisten.org to learn more. There's all sorts of really great creators who are making podcasts for families and kids, just like us. It's really, really fantastic. Gotta get hip. Um, we also have a Patreon account. Hey, even a dollar would help us immensely. This is a labor of love. We do this for fun. Uh, we're committed to doing it once a month. We'd like to do more. Every, every little bit helps, just a step at a time. That's our thing. Uh, but yeah, check us out, patreon.com. And last but not least, tell somebody. And above all, be nice. <laughs>